0: I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. Today, my guest is Oren Gutlerner. Oren has spent over two decades working as an educator serving low-income communities. Most recently, he was the chief academic officer of the Match Charter Public Schools in Boston and the founding director of Match's teacher residency program. Oren currently is the Director of Education at the Shaw Family Foundation and is working on a number of initiatives with open enrollment and alternative education high schools, serving the most needy of our student population in Boston. Today, on the heels of our conversation last week about adopting mass Course standards in BPS, we are going to talk with Oren about rigor and grit in the context of a report recently issued by the new teacher project called The Opportunity Myth. Oren, Welcome. Hi, Joe. Hi, Orrin. So last year, the New Teacher Project, or TNTP, issued a report called The Opportunity Myth, which talks about how it is not only a lack of standards like Core that are failing our children, but also a lack of rigor in our classrooms. So start at the beginning, who is TNTP?
1: So TNTP as a sort of spin-off organization from Teach for America, it's been around for several decades. And they focus on teacher improvement in low-income communities at a variety of levels. So they work on policy issues. They do direct teacher training. I think they've probably trained close to 40,000 teachers themselves. Um, and they also do studies like this one that look at how to move quality teaching at scale.
0: Yeah, it's, and it's interesting, too, because they, they don't really necessarily take the teacher side. They seem to be very unbiased in their approach to, to studying the work that teachers are doing.
1: Yeah. I mean, they really have a reputation for, I think, objectivity mm. and for looking at the the very many different dimensions of this problem of how to make sure that every kid every day is in front of a quality teacher.
0: So the opportunity myth. So where, why this study? Where did the study come from?
1: Well, so I, I imagine it probably came from a few places. One that they cite in the report is they look at um, how many students are not graduating college. Mm. Uh, and they look at this promise of American education that, you know, if you work hard and you do what you're supposed to in high school, you take the right classes, um, you can go on to succeed in some type of post-secondary education, which we we all know is required now to be successful in our economy. Um, So number one, they're looking at how many low-income students are getting into college but not graduating. Mm -hmm. They also look at the massive amounts of student debt that those uh, students are accumulating, often for remedial classes. I think they cited that there's about $5 billion spent annually just on taking remedial classes.
0: So explain that for a second, because this was this was mm-hmm. one big surprise to me as I started to uh, dig into and learn more deeply mm-hmm. um, about our public school system. So, so students are graduating from high school having taken, they thought, the requisite courses to get into college and mm-hmm. be successful in college. And yet when they get into college and take some of the pre-work, the Mm pre-tests they're finding they don't actually have the basis for what they need to actually take college level courses. And so they're paying for courses to teach them what they thought they had learned in high school.
1: Yeah. That's exactly right. Uh, And you know, often they then have to take remedial courses that don't even count for college credit Right. yet they they are paying out of pocket or through student loans for those classes. And uh, I don't know the data off the top of my head, but there there's you know really significant findings around this in terms of if you have to take a remedial class, what your likelihood is to actually graduate college. It, right. it decreases significantly. Yeah.
0: Um, well, it's got to be incredibly demoralizing. It's so
1: demoralizing too, right? You think
0: you're on a pathway, and all of a sudden, it's like, oh, by the way, the past four years that you spent taking courses that didn't prepare you absolutely for being here.
1: Yeah, I can think of lots of personal examples. Yeah. from I mean, from my own education experience, and from lots of students I've worked with who. Um, just really felt defeated when they, you know, first got on a college campus and found out that the the A's and the B's that they got in that high school right. really didn't mean anything when they got to college. Well, and
0: this has got to be frustrating for college admissions as well, right? Because they're looking at GPAs and mm-hmm. they're looking at test scores, right? And mostly to to have to enter students into or to admit students into their colleges. And mm-hmm. so it's also got to be demoralizing for the for the colleges to then have students who can't even meet the most basic exams.
1: Sure, I mean, not good for their bottom lines to see so many students dropping out. You know, although I will say colleges to some degree are complicit in this as well. and, And they are probably far too willing to take students they know are ill prepared and and are not necessarily being creative in how they support those students
0: right because um, at least they can drive revenue so this off is of it. this
1: is a problem at so many different levels of of k twelve education and okay. post secondary education as well
0: all right so let's dig into the city- the study a little bit. Where did the data come from
1: so this was really just a beautiful study uh, in terms of how comprehensive it was. They looked at five different districts from around the country, including some charter networks. Mm -hmm. Um, They were all very diverse districts demographically. Mm -hmm. Um, And then what they did, which was really remarkable is they sort of followed this through line um, through between the actual assignments that kids got in class. So they sent in teams of observers into these schools. They collected the assignments. They looked at how the teachers graded those assignments They rated the quality of instruction that the teachers uh, were delivering at the time they were giving those assignments. Mm -hmm. They also had some really used some interesting technology to survey students, these sort of random surveys that would pop up in class and the students would have to answer a few questions at that moment. Like, how engaged do you feel?
0: I thought that was very interesting. Really interesting and really
1: smart. So I think something like 30,000 plus data points came from the students themselves. And
0: from what, third grade? To 12th grade, I think. Third
1: grade to 12th grade. Yeah, this is yeah. a wide range of yeah.
0: types of, or, or age of students, also races of students and yes. socioeconomic backgrounds of students, yeah. so very diverse, yeah.
1: And then finally, they, uh, they did some deep interviews and surveys of teachers to try to get a sense of teacher expectations for student learning right. as well. So then you could really just like connect the dots between the work kids were given, the instruction they were given, how the kids felt about the work, and mm-hmm. ultimately how the teachers felt about those students in terms of their expectations for them.
0: Okay. So let's talk about the key findings from that report. Let's start with the students. Mm-hmm. So so what, what did they find about, about the students and about um, the results uh, that they were seeing in terms of the work yeah. that was being done by students? Yeah. So
1: you know, in close to 90% of the observations, students mm-hmm. were doing what they were asked to, to be doing, yeah. right? So yeah. that kind of defeats one of the myths that like we have these unruly classrooms and kids who are coming in with all sorts of behavioral challenges and they won't listen to their teachers. That, that's not what they found. So yeah. like 90% of the time, kids were making real attempts to do the work that was right. in front of them. Right. Um, but, you know, in fewer than half of the survey points, students actually felt deeply engaged in that work they did they did not feel like that while they were doing the work and doing what was being asked of them um, they didn't really feel like that a deep sense of enjoyment joy engagement that you get when you're doing something that's really feels meaningful and challenging yeah
0: and you know you think of I could think back to the days that I was in school and as soon as you tip to boredom Mm -hmm. you you are not in learning mode at all And then you're just trying to figure out ways to entertain yourself.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, your brain is going off in so many different directions. You just think about how little brain power you're actually spending on the assignment versus the various like social stimuli in the classroom or anything else that you might want to think about. I mean, I'll talk about my my son, you know, tells me he plays a little game in class when he's bored, which is how... How far he can go into his thoughts and then still raise his hand and be able to answer the question.
0: (laughs) Well, you (laughs) know, there's probably there's probably something there that actually is very beneficial. I'm sure it's very beneficial, but but it it, might not be exactly the task that they they're trying to go after. So you know, this is it. Just kind of it really means though that teaching is such an important job, and you have to be a very skilled leader of a classroom in order to do it well and to deliver a curriculum that is always engaging and is, yeah. is taking advantage of students. Um, what about teachers, right? So, so our teachers mm-hmm. are those people, and do they feel engaged? They feel like they're delivering the right level of curriculum? And, and like, why is there a disconnect? Because in that report, students, like, like the majority of students, the deep majority, majority of students' expectations are that they're going to go to college mm-hmm. and they, when they want to be in jobs which require college. So their expectations are set very high. And and yet there's this disconnect on what's being delivered to them and asked of them, and they don't figure it out until they've graduated. And so so what's going on with teachers are teachers not trust that students are where we we have learned that they are or, or you know what Yeah,
1: it's a great question. Yeah. I can answer it probably on a lot of different <laughs> dimensions. I mean, so one I I think teachers are working exceptionally hard, both in class and out of class, to be ready for their lessons each day. Right. Um, Actually, the sort of sad irony is often when you walk into a classroom, the teachers who look like they are working the hardest, who are up there and trying to put on the big performance and are zipping around the room Mm -hmm. and have lots of bells and whistles in their lessons, they're often the ones who are blocking students from doing the work and doing the thinking themselves. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times there's a sense from teachers, and I, I certainly saw this a lot in my work, uh, with novice teachers yes that um, you are the one who has to kind of pull your students across the, the finish line, so to speak of a lesson right um, and that when students seem bored or disengaged or struggling, you just have to work harder right and it's actually the opposite. you have to get more out of the way and trust that your students, Um, can rise to the occasion.
0: Can deeply dig in. Can
1: deeply dig in.
0: Because this is, so this is part of what the report said. The report said that students are most deeply engaged when they're being given grade-appropriate assignments, when the instruction lets students do most of the thinking in the lesson, where there's a deep sense of engagement with students in what they're learning, what you just said, and um, that teachers hold high expectations for the students and truly believe that they can meet Grade level standards, Mm -hmm. and so so this is how this is what's happening in the student's mind. This is how the student is judging whether or not um, they're they're in an environment that's focused on learning. And these things really seem to mean that a lot of this has to be student led, and that the teacher really should just be the course corrector and the Mm -hmm. cheerleader. Yes, which seems like a less important role than the. Academic administrator, but but it's but actually, I think this work is probably harder to do to let the student drive his own.
1: Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I mean, so the teacher, uh, you know, I would love every teacher to, to feel like their job is to create a learning environment in which students feel like they can take risks, yeah. um, and yeah. put themselves out there, and challenge themselves, and and know that they're going to get support and feedback on their thinking. But ultimately, the teacher is not going to do the thinking for them. I mean, a teacher makes, you know, probably 100 different decisions over the course of a lesson. So Mm -hmm. many small decisions that together added up, um, communicate your expectations to students. So it's all these little moments of I've asked you a question, you give me an incomplete or incorrect answer. What do I do? Do I dumb down the question at that moment? Do I bail you out and give you the answer? Mm -hmm. Um, Do I just make... or do I say hmm, that's interesting? Does anyone else want to add on mm-hmm. to, to this idea? Right. Do I come back to you and ask you later on in the lesson to try to um, to add to your thoughts, for example? Right, and that's so, all.
0: That's all the base. Like then you're working from a place where your expectation is that I, the student, can do the work exactly and that in then you're just guiding the conversation to make sure i'm seeing the whole picture
1: but you can see how that narrative can go in a totally different direction right, right? of right. like uh, in in so many of these small moments the teacher is up there they're getting nervous they're worried about the pacing of the lesson yep. the bell is going to ring in their mind, it's like, we all have to get to the right answer. And so if it hasn't come from you, the students, I'm gonna just sort of fill it in as the teacher. Um, So in all sorts of subtle ways, teachers can lower their expectations for students or communicate to them. And I don't really trust that you could do the type of thinking that's required to do grade level work.
0: Okay, so that's another question that came up, but let me preface it with a question about the types of schools that were um, a part of the study. Were, were the findings the same across the board across students um, with it, it, of different colors of uh, students um, of different socioeconomic backgrounds how did how did the data pan out that way
1: yeah I mean to me the most striking finding in the report is that students uh, classrooms, where the majority of the students were students of color,
0: yeah,
1: um, 40% of the time that they were observed did not receive a single grade-level assignment. I
0: know, that blew my mind.
1: Uh, and, and that was a massive difference. Uh, I mean, across the board, we were seeing that kids were not getting grade-level work. Yeah. Um, but students of color, it, it was really striking. We are just talking about non-existent. I mean, so that means 40% right. of those of those students, their teachers were... I'm sure the teachers had some access to grade level curriculum, but they yeah. were essentially looking at that curriculum and saying, "This will not work for these students," right. um, and that is massively problematic. Yeah. Uh, it's a massive equity issue that we, you know we still haven't found a way to systematically address.
0: So I, I have. So you you worked in urban education mm-hmm. with um, disparate, different socio, kids of dis, disparate um, socioeconomic backgrounds, but a lot of the work that you've done is with students who are living, are yeah. living in poverty. So does that finding strike you as not surprising? Is that kind of what you see when you go out into the world? And and it just it asks, it begs so many questions about how kids are being graduated year over year without having the basis for what they need for the following year. Are we not able to attract the right types of teachers to... Certain school systems or certain parts of school systems. What what's your point of view on all of it? Yeah.
1: That? So unfortunately, it's not surprising to me um, yeah. th- those findings. Um, you know, al- although I think the way that TN- this TNTP report illustrated it was pretty unique and yeah. comprehensive. Yeah. Um, are we not attracting the right people? I mean, I think I think one issue in terms of um, the the demographics of our teaching force related to our um, our student population in low income communities, um, we're definitely not doing a good enough job of uh, attracting and retaining teachers of color. Um, Mm. I think a white teacher walking into a classroom with students of color, um, they have to do a lot of work around their own biases first, right? Mm -hmm. There's a lot of, before I've even stepped into the classroom, Um, the time that I have when I'm deciding what we're going to teach on a given day, you know, I I need to really unpack some of my own thinking about my students. Like, what is it that might be causing me to say that I don't think my students are going to be up to the task. Right. And then I think on the student side, um, they're also have some real questions about their teachers as well, right? Is this someone who believes that I am intelligent, believes that I am capable
0: Um, Right, because they're reading into the expectations. They're absolutely reading into the expectations.
1: Yes, they are, Uh, and and students are great readers of teachers. Yeah. (laughs) And so, if you are, uh, if you're, you know, bailing students out, they they know when you're not um, holding them to the highest standards. They know when you're not giving them rigorous and interesting work. And then we just have sort of confirmation bias operating that you know the students' bias about the teacher is being confirmed the teacher's bias about the kids is being confirmed um, and and there was a real
0: problem. It's this perpetual negative momentum. Exactly. So, but what's interesting, what was interesting in the study is that it can all change Mm -hmm. in a very short period of time. And so can you talk a little bit about what they saw when curriculum was course corrected and made grade appropriate and uh, the right level of rigor Kids rose. So talk, talk a little bit about that. that They rose to the challenge.
1: I mean, I think the most hopeful part of the study is that, you know, what, when they looked at student gains, um, which I I didn't mention initially, the other thing that they did look at was like, what sorts of academic gains did the students in the study make over the course of a year? Um, the students who gained the most were the ones who actually started off Furthest behind, yeah. Um, in terms of grade level competency,
0: when when the right level of exactly. curriculum was put in front of students, when yep. they
1: got that mix of the right assignments, uh, the right instruction, a teacher with high expectations, and the kids themselves felt like they were deeply engaged in the learning. So, which bu- is so interesting, though, right? So because there's there's a teacher saying, mm-hmm. "Oh,
0: that you know this child is not going to be up to the task," gives them low quality curriculum the child does not progress same child with a teacher with high expectations puts grade level appropriate curriculum in front of them and they completely are up to the task absolutely so the assumption was just completely wrong right they're able to do the do, do the work and they they are on this new trajectory that is is creating great proficiency more quickly Yes. And, right. So, so this whole thing can be turned around really on any given day at any given time with on, the right teaching. On any given day. I mean, yeah. the
1: you know, it's like the, the student confidence in themselves sort yeah. of breeds yeah. more confidence to take more risks. Yeah. Right. So if I, for the first time feel challenged and I'm yeah. supported well on that challenge and I actually do something that I didn't believe I was capable of doing. Well, the next time you put something challenging in front of me, I am more likely to engage in that task. It's this virtuous cycle of like of confidence breeding confidence.
0: Yeah. And so I mean, it just it just makes me wonder how how do parents get involved in this, right? Because if parents mm-hmm. are observing that a child's curriculum is not rigorous enough and that the child could do more, how, how do you you have to have a willing teacher, right? They, you have to have a teacher who also buys into that notion and is willing to change what they're putting in front of a student. And so how, how do you work in a positive way?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, your point about parents is a really good one. So I think, you know, absent um, school leadership that's able to sort of help teachers Would meet this challenge. I think Mm. parents do have a role in holding their teachers and and schools accountable. Mm -hmm. Um, I wish there were some better ways for parents to understand what grade level work means, right? And like, what it what are the assignments that are coming home in the book bag? Yeah. Um, And what is it that your kids are doing all day? And uh, parents should be empowered to ask questions about that.
0: Right. Right. Yeah. It's. It would be so interesting if there was just a meter that was published that just you know. I yeah. could say, yeah, this, the work in your son's backpack is of grade level. Right. Yeah. Yeah. you're, and, you know. and it's tough and he's up for the challenge and that's why we gave it to him. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Expectation setting is really everything. But so the, the summary though, is that if there's a student in school who's, who's deficient in the curriculum that they're receiving, they're not doomed to always be behind that this, this can be self-corrected at, at any given point. They can be put on a new trajectory.
1: Yes. I think that's an, uh, an incredibly hopeful part of this study.
0: So, so what what makes a good lesson then?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I mean, I do think it first starts with uh, with a task that is going to ask students to um, to connect what they're learning to something else that's bigger and more meaningful to a bigger idea that's that's being developed over time.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and I, you know, there within each academic discipline, I think there are really big and interesting questions. Um, that sort of help keep the curriculum for that discipline together. and to the degree that every day you are answering one of those important questions in your lessons,
0: yeah. that's a
1: that's a good start. And when you're making students um, sort of make the connections between uh, what they're learning in that moment and some bigger concept that's being developed over time, mm. That's usually a good start. Then I think the next piece, Is that the teacher, him or herself, needs to really deeply understand the content, and not just the content, but how kids are going to understand the content. So, like a lot of the work that um, we focused on in in my last role at Match was something we called intellectual preparation for teachers, Mm -hmm. which was a whole process we went through each week with our teachers looking at the next week's curriculum, where they had to. Um, anticipate misconceptions and Mm. think about what are the, if I give my students this challenging task and I get out of the way and let them do the thinking, you know, where might that thinking go off the rails and how am I going to sort of nudge it back? Um, Not how am I going to um, sort of reduce the rigor of the lesson to the point where the students aren't challenged, um, but how can I anticipate you know, the different directions that their mind might go and how ready am I going to be as a teacher to give feedback to students in that moment. And that's a very different role than imagining yourself standing up in front of a classroom and just like quote unquote teaching and explaining, delivering delivering something. It's how quickly can I give the task, get out of the way, and then coach students thinking. And sometimes that means having them think with each other and give each other feedback. Um, to sort of help move them along to meet, ultimately meet that challenge.
0: Do you think there is enough curriculum that's already been developed that is child-centered and the work is really around making sure that teachers feel comfortable delivering that curriculum, or do you think nothing's on balance yet and we really need kind of more on both sides?
1: I think we we must be pretty close at this point to having curriculum that uh, that really is student centered and, yeah. and that offers students the opportunities to do the kind of grade level work that T N T P saw so little of in their study. Mm-hmm. So I don't know how much more sort of massive effort there needs to be around curriculum creation. Right. Uh, I think there are always ways to to update content and make it more interesting to integrate technology and. Sure. Current events and so forth. So there's always right. there's always something you could do to to tweak curriculum, um, and to the to the degree that we feel good about the Common Core standards, um, which I personally believe have really set uh, an appropriate bar mm-hmm. for our schools, um, we should be fairly well caught up. I think that the real next level challenge is how to help teachers not just find that curriculum but access it for themselves, right. do the thinking for themselves and do all of the sort of uh, anticipatory work that I was describing before so that they're ready to, um, to coach students through those challenging tasks.
0: So tell, tell me then about credentialing for teachers in public schools. So, mm. Because I noticed it, it seems that credentials are different depending on the type of school. You know, for example, private schools seem to not necessarily... Worry about hiring someone who has an education background, but more so, they seem to look at whether or not this person has deep knowledge, like you were saying about mm-hmm. the content, uh, the content area that they're teaching. And so, the schools that are preparing teachers with education backgrounds are are they are they doing are they teaching the st- the teachers the right skills? Are teachers graduating with the right skills to be teachers?
1: Largely, no, they are not. Uh, there is really not a single example of uh, a pre-service teacher preparation program mm. that uh, we can point to that is uh, uh, systematically and consistently preparing every teacher to be ready on day one of their first year to ensure that students are, are learning the most they can. Uh, and I think part of the problem, uh, there are you know, a, a number of dimensions to this problem as well. Part of it is that we're not necessarily showing those pre-service teachers the right models of teaching. Right. You know? So a lot of times, like,
0: how many years is this though that I'm going to school for an education degree? Is that gosh, two? Gosh. Two well, years master. so.
1: Uh, it's at least one full year yeah. for a master's program, often two, um, and you know lots of our uh, teachers are prepared in undergraduate programs. So that's a that's a four-year bachelor's. You know, at, at yep. least two of it is focused uh, almost exclusively on your teacher preparation. Um, mm-hmm. But the the piece where I think a lot of this breaks down is in your actual student teaching experience, right? Okay. So. So what is the first classroom that you step into? That's the classroom, the teacher who you are trying to emulate, right. the school that you're trying to emulate. If that school, if those teachers you see early on in your career in that real formative stage of becoming a teacher are not doing the kinds of things that we were just talking about, right? right? If they are like the teachers who um, are, are primarily made up in the uh, in the TNTP study, right? Um, that creates an, an expectation in your own mind of who you can become.
0: Right. Um, and then yeah, let's think about saying. the
1: models of teachers you've had in your own life. Um, teaching is one of the only professions that a a new, a novice practitioner walks into already having experienced tens of thousands of hours of that profession. like. Yeah. New, a new doctor doesn't if you're gonna be a neurosurgeon, right. You don't necessarily come into neurosurgery with a lot of preconceived notions of what it means to be a neurosurgeon <laughs> um, open your brain. Yeah. yeah. so whereas if you're a teacher, you kind of already think you're an expert, even on like day zero of the job, right? Um, you just end up behaving like a lot of other teachers who you've seen and experienced. Yeah, um, so it makes it makes learning to teach um, much more complex you often have to like unlearn what you've seen in order right. to, to create a new vision in your mind for what you can become.
0: So then is the onus on schools, school systems to train teachers? So teachers are heading into these schools and mm-hmm. they obviously there's more to do, more work to do. How, how do, how does that delivery system work? And is it enough? Yeah. I mean,
1: I think it's, it's both uh, on the teacher preparation institutions and on the school systems to partner in a way that is is showing mm-hmm. novice teachers a different vision. So right. you know, I, like what years ago when I um, was working at at Harvard's uh, teacher education program, yeah. and one of the things that was alarming to me um, is that we were often placing student teachers in failing schools. Yeah, right? it was almost like the equivalent of like, would you we'll go back to medicine again? Like, would you train doctors in a hospital that had like a 50% right. death rate among right. its patients. It's, right. it's a little dramatic, but, right. um, and, and yet we were showing. That's what was going on. That's what was going on, right? So if that's what you're seeing, yeah, um, and that's the gravitational pull is toward those sort of low expectations for kids, oh, and yeah. it doesn't matter. You go back to the university campus, the professor could tell you anything, but in your mind, what you see, the person who's in the trenches practicing every day is doing something different that's a, a massive disconnect for a novice teacher. Yeah. And uh, you've now just oriented someone um, sort of in the wrong direction in this right. new profession. And so now then there's a question of like, well, what's gonna happen to kind of disrupt that for yeah, someone?
0: It's so, you're so right about expectations, right? Because you hear so many stories about schools that end up in turnaround because they're, they're like you're describing very low performing schools, but then you, you know you shift to a different set of expectations. And and all different, you know, a different delivery system of curriculum and, and then all of a sudden everything changes. And so it's not rocket science, but we we have to make sure that teachers are exposed to kind of the bright side yeah, and, and not and, the dark side. So that their their expectations going into right. How do you show this work? Or, yeah. You know,
1: how do you show teachers you know, different models of what yeah. what this can be? Yeah. And and then I think importantly, when we get into issues around um, around race yeah. um, and you know, student demographics as, as it relates to teacher demographics, I think that's also so you take like a, um, a, a young white teacher going into uh, a school that's primarily made up of students of color. If it, you know they are already coming in with certain biases that are right hardwired into, uh, right. into us, unfortunately, right. um, they come in and, you know, what they are seeing, uh, in terms of what kind of work those students are given, um, and the kind of instruction that they're given is, um, that's really profound. And that's going to, yeah. that's again, a, a real formative experience for them, um, in those first moments of seeing like, what is this education thing look like um in a school that's made up of students who have very different experiences than my own.
0: So how true it, all of these things that we're talking about, right? Cuz what we're saying is that in students have very high expectations for themselves. It seems to be true across the board. Yeah. And and they have expectations also about their school system and that their school system will help them mm-hmm. meet those expectations, their personal expectations and then but but the truth is that they can walk across a stage after senior year, and receive a diploma, and not necessarily be ready, and and yet there are all kinds of things that can be done to shift the momentum and the trajectory of those students. And so, all of those things, those findings in in this study, how true are they? If we look specifically at Boston public schools,
1: well, I don't think we have to look much further than the valedictorian study that the Boston Globe did. And right. So you know. Those who are not familiar, they uh, the Globe followed um, a number of students who graduated number one in their class from a Boston public high school, and they sort of looked at what happened to them ten years out. Yeah, uh, and it was truly alarming. I mean, these were the valedictorians. I think everyone expected. Um, they certainly expected for themselves that uh, college, while maybe it wouldn't come easy, was certainly uh, a college degree was very much within their grasp. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and that graduating number one in your class should really mean that you are, you are ready to meet the demands of college. Um, and I don't remember the exact numbers, but it was, I believe it was fewer than 40% 10 years out of high school actually had college degrees.
0: Yeah, and so there's, there's a lot of energy right now around moving to mass core standards comprehensively mm-hmm. for all of the high schools and Boston public schools. It seems though that doing just that, that, that's a really important thing to do. Yes. But doing just that is not going to completely do the trick, that there is a community piece of this where mm-hmm. students live and um, work and, and their families, their homes, that, that what happens there is a part of it. And then there's also this whole story of rigor And, and, you know, we talked to Ross a couple of weeks ago about how students move through the system and certain ones are given tests and certain ones are not. And certain students end up on particular trajectories where the expectations are very high, both of themselves and, and upon them. And then others are not, and it's, they must, kids must know that. And so, um, this is a big this is a big project and it's not really just a Boston Public School project. It's kind of a community project as well. Mm-hmm. And so what do you think what do you think should be done on the school side to progress the work, the curriculum, add rigor as as the school system thinks about adopting mass core standards?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I Completely agree with your point. We're really not going to move the needle on this if we if we just focus the conversation on like which classes students take, right? right? We we've got to sort of break into the classroom itself, like TNTP did, to really understand uh, the quality of the work and instruction that students are receiving. And um, I think one of the things we have to grapple with in Boston is the degree to which we are going to continue to leave schools on their own to figure this out. Right. Um, so we have not for a number of years in Boston had a really sort of strong centralized approach to how we were gonna drive quality curriculum and quality instruction. I mean,
0: I don't understand why isn't there just a shelf, a, a hypothetical shelf right. on which curriculum for eighth graders sits and curriculum for 11th grader sits and yes. you just grab it. And then, and then really the work mm. is how do I deliver it effectively as a teacher?
1: That's a great question, <laughs> um, and you know, I just say, you know, from the, a little bit from the outside looking in, someone yeah. who is who was working in a in a charter network for a while, I mean, that's that's what we did. I think yeah. it was the number one thing that we would attribute um, you know, any any of our good academic results to was the fact that. Um, we were able to collectively get everyone in that organization to agree mm-hmm. that yes, this is the shelf of eighth grade curriculum. Yeah. These are the monthly assessments that matter the most that are going to tell us if our students are on track and, you know, here are other support resources, weekly coaching, weekly intellectual preparation meetings, lots of time for teachers to, uh, to talk to each other, to yeah. see each other practice. We're just going to agree that we have to put in that time that it, it, it was just too important not to. Yeah. And while there would always be some amount of debate and dissension about like, oh, I'd, you know, I'd like to swap in this book for that book and so forth. Sure. And of course, you know, we were attuned to teacher feedback and would make those subtle changes from year to year. Yeah. Um, sort of in macro, we were all on the same page about, what it was that students were gonna learn, how we were gonna assess learning, mm-hmm. and what quality teaching looked like.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. And bringing, te- and really bringing students into the mix. Like, I know my daughter's Spanish curriculum requires her, she's tested every day, mm-hmm. she assesses her own test. She assigns herself homework for the next day based on the results of of her own test. She's not scared by the test. The tests are just a part of her learning, right? It shows her where she is deficient and where she's succeeding. And she's judging what has to be done next. And it seems like... It's part of what the study is saying: is get students that involved. Yeah,
1: get them that involved because they can be. Yeah, she's developing all the metacognitive skills that are going to be important no matter what she is learning, right. or, or you know whether that's in the workplace or in college or or anywhere. Right. Um that's, and, and their failing is yeah. great. She's learning. You, okay, you fail. Yeah.
0: So that would be your homework. Tomorrow. Totally.
1: Right. Yeah, she's learning. She's learning how to learn. Yeah. And I mean. My sense, you know, I hope none of this comes off as like kind of blaming teachers. Like I think teachers yeah. are very much uh, they, they want this. there's not a, I've never met a single teacher who did not want uh, to feel like their students were engaged and challenged yeah. and driving their own learning yeah. um, in the way that you described for your daughter. right. Um, I, I do think that the systems of support around teachers
0: yeah.
1: um, it must be lacking. It mm. Must be lacking inside of our schools, and I've just even seen from my own, um, my two kids' experience coming out through Boston public schools, yeah. just the variation in uh, in quality in terms of the the work that they're being assigned, um, from teacher to teacher, from school to school. We've been in four different schools now. Um, it, there's a just remarkable variation.
0: Right. So it, it. So potentially, this is this is potentially the, the last thing to discuss, but the so mass core and and there's a working group around whether or not the school system adopts mass core, which there seems to be pretty positive momentum around mm-hmm. but there does that is that working group does that include discussions around rigor or is this is this an is this is this being talked about right now or because it seems like this is kind of critical path as well is and it sounds like teachers would like it. Right, they'd like the infrastructure that allows them mm-hmm. to be aggressively rigorous yeah. with students. Sounds like students would like it too. So, how how does is that happening? Are those discussions happening?
1: I don't know what i what I hope they are discussing. Uh, again, beyond just the like saying on paper or on a transcript that students have taken four years of English and four years of math and so on, um, is you know what kind of teacher learning do we need to ensure that the the content and the instruction is appropriate appropriately rigorous right and there are real trade-offs there right so right. I, right. I think the typical Boston public school um only requires 24 hours a year of professional development from their teachers yep. um Hmm. I think that is just not enough. When you spread that out over the year, it's that that's just it's very, gone, yeah, right? it's and, very small I mean, number. And, and when you think about it's four days, maybe yeah, it's like four Six days Saturdays. and some of the logistics, yeah. right? And you know, are is this working group also looking at if we're going to really move the needle on rigor? Um, what is the appropriate amount of teacher learning time that we need? What is the appropriate amount of coaching that we need? How do we have uh, a teacher evaluation system that is setting the right standard in terms of what instruction looks like and you know, do we have uh, the, the staff, the administrative staff who can help teachers meet that standard. Um, so I don't know if the working group is really touching those dimensions. Uh, unfortunately, that could be uh, thought of as sort of outside the scope of that group.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, but if yeah. that
1: group is gonna be successful, if mass core effort is gonna be successful in terms of the long-term goals of making sure that students are ready for college, it's going to have to touch those different areas as well.
0: Totally. And Paul, Paul Revel talked about that also last week, about how it, it's the standards are kind of baseline. And then it's all of the things that you build around those standards that really drive proficiency and excellence for students. That's right. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that was a great summary of the study. And uh, I certainly learned a lot. Thank you very much, Oren.
1: You're welcome. It was a good conversation. Thanks, Jill. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with our Director of Education, Oren Guttlerner. He spends a great deal of time thinking about the importance of rigor and how to grow the adoption of higher expectations alongside the adoption of MassCore. This is all incredibly important work. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast, and if you did, please follow us and subscribe to our podcast, as well as like it and share it with your friends and others in your community who might find it interesting.